you guys doing today? Good? <laughs> Glad you're having fun out there. Well, I've shown you two videos this morning. One, uh, a person walking along the edge of the Preikestolen rock in Norway, way, way up in the air. And then, of course, this. That's uh, that bridge, by the way, Glass Bottom Bridge. It's 4,700 meters high. So you wonder why people are getting squeaky about it. That's good. Uh, we'll kind of connect the dots on these videos as we get further into the message. Um, as Eve mentioned, and true to the billing, we are in the book of Romans, and uh, what we're doing today marks the end of chapter 11, so a big, a big thing, but uh, it's the, really the end of the, if you will, the doctrinal or the theological or the foundational parts of Romans, uh, but it does end with some pizzazz. Next week, we're going to be starting to talk, as Paul does, about, okay, what do the first 11 chapters of Romans mean for how we Christians ought to live every day? Uh, and so the truth we've dug into and in, uh, counting today, 35 messages so far in Romans, uh, gets very practical next week. So uh, you, know, you ought to plan to, to be here for that as we dip into that. <clears throat> as we kind of kick into the, the message and the text today, I just want to remind ourselves of something uh, and remind myself and, and you guys that well, when we read the Bible, it's not just a series of uh, reflections on our pontifications about God. It's uh, God's very word to us. And uh, God's word begins with history, you know, in the beginning. And it kind of goes through all of human history uh, before it concludes. It, it really is a story. It's an epic story. Uh, and that story unfolds with creation and the fall of man and sin and uh, just how lost we can be. Uh, provision of a savior by God who uh, sacrifices himself to die for mankind. Uh, the church age is there. We're in that part now. And then Christ's return and then eventually new heavens and new earth and an everlasting kingdom. You know, it's really seriously an epic story. And there's a plan, right? Uh, I got a, Britney Spears has a thing up here. Yeah. Brittany may not have a plan, but God does, okay? Uh, he's got a master plan, and in the Bible, God's plan unfolds in chapters, each one the result of God inspiring a human being to write down God's very words. And God's plan is not the result of some, you know, interchange between God and Satan. It's not a sort of a, you know, conflict between good and evil, not a tennis match. It's, it's really God letting this little twerp Satan uh, do whatever God wants him to do within the limits of God's permission. So from the beginning, God had a plan. God saw Jesus, the Lamb of God, his own son, as slain on a cross even before he started to lay the foundation of the universe. God had a book of life with the names of every one of us who are saved and every one of everybody else who's saved before he even began the creation, right? Uh, God is often not very pleased with what happens in the history of mankind, but he's never perplexed. He's never puzzled. He's never baffled. It's a plan that actually reveals many of the attributes of God, right? Uh, just as we can sort of talk about, where's the next slide? There we go. You know, you have these things where you see the attributes of firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn kids, right? The, what we see in the human history of God doing stuff reveals kind of many of his attributes. In creation, we see his wisdom and his power and benevolence. I mean, why would God make roses smell so good? He didn't have to. Why did he make steaks taste so good? Didn't have to, did that for us. He's benevolent. Uh, when God allowed sin into the, into the world, we see the result of his patience in enduring all the ramifications of that sin. With Jesus, we see God's grace and his mercy and his love, the sacrifices for us to pay for mankind's sin. 
When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us as Christians, we see the affection and the warmth of relationship with God. And then, of course, when Christ returns, yeah, some folks are going to see judgment and wrath, but the rest of us are going to have this incredible warmth of homecoming, right? And so amazingly, you and I get to play a role in God's plan. God doesn't just get the ball rolling and kind of leave things to chance, all right? He uh, doesn't play the absentee landlord. He's not just watching from afar. Uh, This God of ours is in total control of what happens down here, and he's going to bring everything he wants to bring to pass to pass. All of his purposes will, in fact, get met, right? And I think it's this realization that Paul gets as he kind of sees what he's actually written in the first 11 chapters uh, of this book of Romans to just basically burst out in praise and awe uh, of God. And he says this at the end of the chapter that we'll get to these verses at the end, but just listen to this. Here's how how he concludes chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Pretty powerful, epic ending to, to this chapter, uh, to, this, to this chapter so far. Let me just pray for us. Guys, we get into this part of this book, it's really kind of a step back and kind of see the whole panorama and be amazed by it as Paul was. And I pray that you would in, infect us with that this morning, that we might not only see you a little clearly, but also realize there's so much more of you that we don't see. Help us to be impressed with you this morning as we open your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, listen, um, I got a couple of pretty uh, cool questions. By the way, my email is daraD at me.com. Dara D at me.com. And if you guys ever, ever have a question, fire me a note. I love getting those and responding. And I got a, a couple of, uh, I got an email this week that had a couple of questions. And uh, the, I think uh, some of the answer I wrote back is um, I've actually thanked the person that said, hey, thanks for helping me write this message today. I'm going to kind of throw some of the stuff I passed on because there's a good questions and they kind of lead us into kind of what Paul's going to be talking about today. Uh, So here's the deal. The first one dealt with this. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about something about God making Israel jealous. Remember that from last week? Remember last week? Remember last week? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You like a little, well, I'm kidding, no. Like Dory the the fish. I I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened last week. Okay, anyway. The pastor this week said that after God rejected Israel, that God turned his attention to Gentiles and sort of flooded the gospel out there and got salvation to all of them, uh, many of them. And, and says one of the reasons he did that was so he could end up ultimately making Israel jealous. And the question I got was, okay, I thought jealousy was wrong, that it's bad to have jealousy. So what gives? Is that, is that really the right word? Did God use the right word? Uh, great question, really. Uh, well, first of all, jealous is the word that God used in that passage, and so it is the right word. I'm not going to deign to edit God, uh, but uh, so it's the right word. But that said, the writer has a great, has a great point. You know, uh, jealousy can be a bad thing, right? I mean, if you, if, if you see stuff that somebody else has, and you say, well, 
I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff so I can keep up with the Joneses and you're going to go into hock to do that. That's, that's a bad result of jealousy. Or another result of jealousy is I see the stuff that you have and I think I'm going to steal it from you as soon as you're not looking. Okay, that's also a bad outcome of jealousy, right? There's some bad things and bad moves that you can get from jealousy. But on the other hand, if God is trying to make Israel jealous enough to return to him, then maybe prompting jealousy isn't necessarily always a bad thing. Maybe it could be a good thing. And uh, maybe he wants an unfaithful Israel to come back to him. He's not wanting Israel to take something from the Gentiles, to steal something from them. He's wanting them to sort sort of see how the Gentiles are relating to God and then so desire that for themselves that they decide they're going to turn back to God and, and experience salvation. So look at this way. Let's say you don't particularly have a great marriage. Everybody here has got great marriages, no problem with that. So, but let's just pretend for a second that you got a miserable marriage. But you've got some friends who have fantastic marriages. Well, you can be really happy for your friends, even though your marriage is miserable, right? But you also could be a little bit jealous, right? That you don't have what they have. Well, that jealousy could lead you to be really bitter and angry towards your friends, right? Or maybe even worse, it might lead you to try to steal his wife or her husband, figuring out, well, if I can get the wife or the husband, that'll, that'll, that'll fix my marriage, right? Of course, both of those are what? Bad moves. Or maybe on the good side, you could use that jealousy of what they have to begin to investigate what it is that makes their marriage so wonderful and then begin to implement what you learn into your own marriage to make it as great as theirs. So in that sense, jealousy can turn out to be a good thing. It's motivated you to do what you need to do to correct the situation you have in your own house. So you see a good thing that you want, you take the steps necessary to achieve that good thing. So that's possibly a good side of jealousy. So if that makes sense, we can move on. The second great question I got was, was this. It, it, it says, look, it seems like, as we've been talking recently, that God really only mostly cares about, about Israel, mostly about Jews. His main focus seems to be on that. Uh, and the question was, gosh, in, in the Old Testament, were all the good guys Jews and all the bad guys Gentiles, the, the non-Jews? Uh, so uh, I can see where that question originates because in the last few messages, uh, it might be easy to think that God is kind of singularly focused on, on Israel and, and the Jewish nation. Uh, and that's because the Apostle Paul has been spending his time in chapters 9, 10, and 11 answering a very specific question. And the specific question is, okay, now that Israel has rejected Christ and God's kind of put them on a sideline, uh, what about Israel? That's the question. What about Israel? God's chosen people. What's the deal with that? So let's just revisit Israel for a second to kind of deal with all those, all those kind of issues and corollaries. One thing to remember here is that God originally, originally created Israel not because he was so enamored of the Jews or of the nation of Israel. God created the nation of Israel by his own words to be a nation that would what? Bless all the other nations. Every other nation on earth was at that time pretty much anti-God, right? So God stepped in and created a new nation, Israel, right? So God's motivation was always even with the creation of Israel, with his eyeballs on the entire globe. He saw Israel with two main functions. One, it would be the nation through which the Messiah would come. And two, 
it would be the nation that would carry forth the gospel to the whole world. So Israel fulfilled the first function. Christ came through the Jewish line. They bailed on the second, right? They rejected Christ. So they messed up big time and are kind of now paying the price as we talked about the last couple of weeks. But as we also talked about the last couple of weeks, there's some really cool times coming downstream for the nation of Israel. Now, in terms of who was buddies with God and who wasn't in the Old Testament, Jews or Gentiles, great question. We need to kind of, I think, do just kind of a quick mountaintop, very brief survey, not really a quick history of all of, hum- all of humanity. Does that, that make sense? You think we can do that in a couple of minutes? <laughs> You're probably going, no, let's just go into something else. Let's just eat some M&Ms. Okay, here we go. Uh, I know this, the, this history is going to look a little differently, different than Mel Brooks's history of the world. Okay, so here's the deal. When did Israel come into existence? It wasn't at the beginning of creation, right? At the beginning of creation, there was Adam and Eve. Not Jew, not Gentile, just two people, right? And then sin happened, and then the consequences of sin started adding up with most people coming along the line, uh, not believing what God said about sin, not believing what God said about a savior, not believing what God said about the need for faith in the savior. Again, no Jews in the world at that time. And thus, there were no Gentiles because the definition of a Gentile is somebody who is not a Jew. Make sense? With me? No? Remember last week? No, okay. (laughs) So, the world then was just a whole bunch of people who basically all spoke the same language. That's what God tells us. Some believed by faith in the Savior that God promised to sin, but most did not. Okay. And then things totally went south. The corruption of mankind got so bad, so evil, that humanity's very existence, God says, was threatened. To save mankind as a species, God caused this great flood to come upon the earth and basically killed everybody except for eight people, the family of Noah. After the flood, God directs these eight people to have lots of babies, to disperse and fill the earth. Problem. Sin still existed. So what you get from that population explosion was mostly unbelievers, which led to the sin at the Tower of Babel, where God throws in languages to confuse them so they all can't get together and decide to sin at the same time altogether, right? The confusion of languages causes them to disperse across the globe, which, of course, as we remember, is what God originally said they should do, right? Well, they move out. They pick places to live. They form cities, you know, tribes become nations. And what do they do? Again, virtually all mankind rebels against God. Things get so bad that God has to step in again because apparently there wasn't a believer. So he finds somebody out there, a guy named Abram in the land of Ur, a idol-worshiping family nation right there. And he leads Abram, what we call Abraham now, to be a believer. And while God was going from Abraham to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, to his sons, the 12 sons, and leads them to, from a famine to have to go to Egypt. They grow into a family that uh, you know, continues to grow, 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 kind of a people group then known as the Hebrews. They get so numerous that the Pharaoh gets scared that they're going to take over the country, so he enslaves them, and that lasts 400 years. Now, while that's going on, hundreds of years, the rest of the world, continued on its merry path of idol worshiping and dissing God and increasing depravity, getting more and more nasty and despicable. 
So finally, the nation of Israel comes onto the scene, really, as a supernatural creation of God. Ultimately, it's going to usher in the Messiah, who's going to offer salvation to a very, 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 very lost world. I reckon at this point, given that now there is an Israel and Hebrews and Jews, there would technically also be Gentiles. That is, all the people in the world who are not Israel and Jews. And remember, they've all gone off their reservation. There is no God-believing nation out there in Gentile land. But as we've discussed with Israel's history, God's chosen people was also kind of a disaster as a people group. With most people through time, even in that nation that God had a covenant with, not trusting in God either. And remember the covenant of God was with Israel. It said this, well, here's the deal. I'm making these commitments. You're making these commitments back. If you do the things you commit to do, I'm going to just bless the socks off you. And um, if you don't, you're going to rue the day. And they rued the day a whole lot through their history. And this pattern continued pretty much all the way up to Christ. With God saving some Jews along the path, a rim that he calls them, uh, from an Israel that was actually, not, in many ways, not a whole lot better than some of the Gentile nations. Anyway, it turns out that, God's, that Israel's rejection of Christ didn't really screw up God's plans at all. Remember, he's got a master plan. It filled, it's actually fulfilled God's plans. Jesus comes, he suffers, he dies, he rises again, just what he came to do. But Israel's rejection of Christ causes God to put Israel on a shelf and uh, under judgment for a time. It's kind of a long time, right? 20 plus centuries, uh, and the clock is still counting. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. So these questions and these answers lead us right into our text today, chapter 11, starting in verse 28. And what you're going to see here that Paul outlines is essentially, look, if you look up the span of human history, there's been four distinct phases of humankind. And so Paul's going to, uh, I'll read the passage, then we'll kind of Lay out those, those, those things. See if you can spot the four, the four phases. As regards the gospel, Paul says, they, the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sake. And they're, they're opposed to the gospel. So you Gentiles are, are seeing the gospel being opposed by Israel. But as regards election, you know, God's original choice to make a covenant with Israel, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? God still has a place for believing Jews to come. Still has a plan for them downstream. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Um, for just as you, talking about the Gentiles again, were at one time disobedient to God, remember the state of the Gentile world when, Jew, when Israel was created? A mess. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now through the gospel have received mercy because of their disobedience, because Israel rejected Christ, God says, I'm going to flood the market with uh, the Gentile market with the gospel. So they too have now been disobedient. They rejected Christ. In order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they, Israel, may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Okay. See the four phases? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Sounds complicated, but it's really not. Paul's basically laying out these four phases. Here's the first phase. A massive period of Gentile disobedience. Covers all the nations of the globe that were not Israel, including all the people that existed before Israel, and all the people after Israel gets created that are not, they're not Israel. And all of those peoples, mostly through time, most of humanity as sinners have not been worshipers of the one true God. And God let those nations and people kind of go their own way and sink further and further into the morass that they had 
uh, going on with sin. And to be honest, sometimes it got so bad there in those nations that God just kind of moved in to eliminate them. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, but also think Mayans, think Aztecs, think Incas, think Hittites. Think of all the civilizations the Bible refers to, the civilizations we know existed that no longer walked the planet. Learn about those cultures and how they operated and you'll see why God finally said, enough's enough. I've had it up to here. And they disappeared. Anyway, God eventually moves, as we talked about, to create Israel, which ushered in the second phase, a period of Jewish disobedience. They were disobedient much along the path, but it reached its, its zenith with the rejection of Christ as a nation. So virtually all Jews right now, as Paul said, are kind of hardened to the gospel. They're not, they're not accepting it. They really don't know how to accept it. It's, they're kind of blind to it. Well, that's going on right now. But that thing also ushered in the third phase, which is a time of mercy for Gentiles, right? That as God flooded the market, it's the direct result of Israel kind of rejecting Christ. So God's reaching down, saving multitudes of Gentiles across the years through what? Mercy. What's mercy? I deserve death for the sin I have committed, but God's giving me mercy He's not giving me what I deserve. He's giving me life through faith in Christ. And this phase, Paul says, is going to eventually work its way to phase four, a time of mercy for Israel. Paul's referring to here about what we talked about last week. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the Jewish nation is going to be positioned as they watch what's going on in the Gentile world and how amazed they're going to be that the, the Gentiles have this incredible relationship with their own God that they don't have. And it makes them turn back to God and accept Christ and they call him uh, Lord and Savior when he shows back up. So uh, that's, how, that's how it is. So that, Paul ends these verses by basically telling us that all these phases are working towards a goal. That God's got not just a master plan, he's got a master goal afoot. And that is the reason, he's wanting to make sure that the entire globe, Jew, Gentile, everybody, sort of just sees how wonderfully merciful God is. What God did with Israel, with the covenant, his law, promise, all that, kind of showed that men are, men are sinners, that they needed salvation, right? And that they're totally hopeless in getting there on their own. But when Israel rejected Christ, God's mercy flooded out to the unbelieving masses of Gentiles who knew nothing about Israel, nothing about their law, nothing about their God. But a lot of them had been persuaded, looking at their own lives, look at their own culture, look at their own cities, look at their own nation, look at their own behavior, that they were indeed messed up. And when the gospel came, it just popped. And a lot of them decided to receive Christ. Later on, God's going to draw Israel back. And when he does, both Gentiles and Jews are going to say, look, we didn't accomplish this on our own. We got there because of God's mercy. We did not deserve it. We did not, he didn't owe us anything. And it's awesome. So what the world is going to be saying when this all culminates is not about how wonderful we are, but about how awesome God is. And all the boasting, you know, what's happening, the Jews are, remember them? It's like, we're so good because God's chosen us. And all these Gentiles are just scum. And a lot of, a lot of people who are Gentiles now are looking at the Jewish nation and going, well, we've accepted Christ and they killed him and so they're bad. And, and, God, and we have this tendency to kind of poke at each other. And God says, when it's all over, be no poking going on. You're all going to realize you're all in the same boat. You're all consigned to disobedience. You've all been disobedient and you all deserve nothing but death. But I mercifully have stepped in to save you. And all the attention is not going to be on each other. It's going to be on God and how awesomely marvelous he is. So 
That's kind of how Paul ends those, those, those verses. And he gets into verse 33. It's almost like, it's almost like as Paul kind of summarizes, I mean, he's kind of stepping back and looking at what God has just inspired him to write. And it's almost like he's blown away by what it, the, the depth of it and the marvel of it and the awesomeness of it. Uh, maybe he feels like Harriet Beecher Stowe, right? <laughs> I was just God's dicta- dictation machine. He speaks it and I wrote it down and I, I'm looking back at what I wrote and I'm not even sure that I fully grasp it. And we see him launch into this awesome praise and worship of this God who's got a plan, maybe pieces of which he didn't even realize the depth of before he started writing what God gave him to write and stepped back and looked at it. Paul's a little bit like, I think, our modern-day brain surgeons, right, who tell you, look, we're, we're doubling or whatever our knowledge of the brain every five years. We know much more about how the brain works than we did five years ago. We're, we're, we're creating facts and understanding that we never had before. But you know what? Every massive discovery that we make only proves to us this. It just proves to us how much little we know about the brain, it, we, how little we know about how it functions. It's, it's more marvelous it's more, it's more ingenious than we ever thought, that we ever gave it credit for, right? And, and then Paul says, well, that's, that's God. <laughs> that's God. He's that. He's all that. He's like the brain on steroids, you know? And we have 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Oh, the depth. That's why I showed you these videos. I mean, you might think you could walk on a glass bottom bridge 4,700 meters high and you get, you're all cocky and brave. You climb whatever you do have to get up there, take the, take, the, take the shuttle or whatever. But you get to the edge of that thing and you step on it and you go, like many of those Chinese did, whoa, whoa. That's a lot deeper than I thought. That's a little more scary than I thought. That's a little more impressive than I thought. All right? think you can do it, think you can grasp what God's all about, but then you really start seeing what he's really like and you kind of realize, wait a minute, he is far more than I imagined. There's a, I got a picture I think, yeah, I don't know how the, why these, a guy's holding a girl's hand and she's at the top of the Burk Khalifa in Dubai, the highest building on earth. And I'm going, why would you do that? But I, mean, I, I get little sweaty palms just look at, look, at, look at that picture. But depth, that's what Paul's talking about. God is just so much more than I ever imagined. There are things in the depth of God that exist that, that we don't even know about, that we don't understand. We have things that are hidden there that we don't grasp it. I mean, we see some things, right? God has revealed himself and everything he's revealed to us is true about him, but there's more. There's a depth we don't get. It's a difference between an infinite God and a finite humanity. We see and grasp some of them, but what we see is not everything. We can't fool ourselves into thinking, we know we got him figured out now. We now understand him. We get, we, yeah, we get it. We, we, we got him down, right? He's like an onion, right? Layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, each one a true part of the onion. But when you think you're done, there's another layer. He's, he's like the infinite onion, right? And every time you think you maybe got it figured out, you got God down, you got mastered it, it's, you're wrong. He's just more. And there's more depth that we don't even see. So the depth. You'll never get to the bottom of God. Never get to the bottom. Which means he's at the bottom of everything. He's the foundation of everything. Nothing makes sense 
in terms of understanding and comprehension about anything going on in the universe until you understand and fit God into that package. He is the explanation. He's the cause. And he's the purpose for everything. Well, the depth of what, Paul says? Well, they've got riches, wisdom, and knowledge. So how rich is God? Oh, the depth of those riches. Don't you think God, I mean, you and I, you and I, when we think about the richest guy in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's worth now $150 billion. You think God looks at that and goes, wow, man, I'm really impressed. <laughs> I'm really impressed by the $150 billion there, dude. No, God's so rich, we, don't, we can't even imagine it. See, everything that exists, God owns best verse in the world, I think, of this is Deuteronomy 10. It says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God's, God owns Bezos and everything that Bezos owns. He owns you. He owns me. He owns this planet. He owns everything in the far reaches of space and the heaven beyond the heavens with all the angelic beings. It's all his possession. He can do anything he wants to, anytime he wants to. And besides that, well, think about it. Okay, Bezos is 54. He's got what? Maybe 30 years left on this planet? And uh, when that's over, God will not have aged a bit. If he lasts 30 more years, God will simply recycle him. He owns him. God is rich in the sense that he made everything that there is and can make anything that he pleases any time he pleases and as much of it as he pleases. Right? His resources are limitless. I mean, if you can make anything you want to make and as much of it as you want to make, any time you want to make it, and all you have to do is say the word, your resources are limitless. You are not bound by raw materials. You can make all the raw materials you need by speaking. God is, in fact, himself the treasure of the universe. He is of infinite value. Now, he's freely given us, through grace and mercy and kindness, our ability to enjoy him. And Christ is told, we're told in, in, in Ephesians, that, that Christ contains the unsearchable riches, right, of God. Colossians tells us that we Christians have received God's riches by Christ living in us. God's rich. He throws some our way. But don't ever think you've figured out exactly how rich he is. We've no idea. God's wisdom and knowledge also have incredible depth. Interestingly, Colossians tells us that in Christ is hidden all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge of God. Now, knowledge in scripture is usually uh, the, uh, the ability to know, what, to know the facts, to know the facts. And wisdom is the ability to know how to use those facts. So this means that God's knowledge is unfathomably deep. You know, he would never lose jeopardy. He would never lose a trivial pursuit. He knows all the recorded facts stored in all the computers and all the books and all the libraries and all the world forever. And maybe even more impressive, he knows what is not a fact on the internet. Right? He's never fooled. He knows what's going on at the macro level. Right? All that happens on earth. Everything that happens in space and beyond. He knows all the things going on at the micro level. He knows when every sparrow falls. He knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head or how many you don't. And he knew before this slide 
that a bunch of kangaroos were called a mob. Right? He knows all that happens in molecules and atoms and protons and neutrons and quarks. He knows all of their movements all the time. He knows every location all the time of everything. He knows about all events in all of human history. He knows about everything that happens in our minds, our wills, our actions, our thoughts, our motives, our choices. And that includes past, present, and future. He knows events that have ever, that have, all the events that have ever happened, all that ever will happen, and all that could happen. He knows how all events relate to and affect each other. He not only sees an event, but he sees the eternal chain of events that emanate from that particular event and from all of the other billions of events unleashed by every other event. And guess what? None of this, none of this taxes him. God is unfathomably wise. Maybe we have a little wisdom, like on this slide, you know, okay, I'm just going to avoid doing what idiots do. That's, that's my level of wisdom, right? But God's wisdom is incredible. He's always been able to conceive and carry out exactly his plans with good goals. He knows how to use all the facts of the universe and guide all the events of the universe to achieve the absolute best outcome in every situation. We're told in Colossians that all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, right? Christ actually sustains this universe, we're told. Christ, it says, is before all things and in all things, uh, everything holds together in him. It says, for in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, so the riches of God are ours in Christ. The wisdom of God is ours in Christ. The knowledge of God are ours in Christ. And we know some things right here, right? We can read the Bible and become wiser, become more knowledgeable. We're told in Corinthians that the Holy Spirit is actually given to us to illuminate our minds so we can actually experience the mind of Christ. But even so, Corinthians also tells us, you know, you and I see through a mirror dimly. We only know in part. We can only see part of the depth of God. We're just not capable of seeing the whole thing. He is simply beyond us. So Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? The answer to that, <laughs> nobody. Nobody knows the mind of God completely. Nobody really knows it all in its entirety. Nobody knows God well enough to be his counselor, his advisor. We know something of God's mind, do we not, through the 11 chapters of Romans? We're meant to understand those chapters. But to know God well enough to say, okay, now we can give you some advice. You know, in chapter nine, when you said this, yeah, you could, you could have said that better. You could have meant something else than what you said because we think that that's a mistake. You should do it differently, right? Isn't this what we love to do? Isn't this what most people love to do? Don't we love to tell God, I do not like the way you seem to be running the universe. I do not like the way you seem to be running my life. I think you should do things a little differently. We love to tell God how he should run things. And you know what we sometimes do? We threaten him. Well, if you don't do what I say, then I'm just going to not believe in you. This is stupidity. This is like a diabetic telling his doctor, I don't really like the way you're treating me. These shots are a real nuisance. And if you don't do better, I'm just not going to ever come back here. <laughs> if you give me one more shot of insulin, I'm never showing up again. Ooh, macho man. <laughs> Listen, that's not a threat to the doctor. It is not a threat to the doctor. 
It's suicide for the diabetic. So when we basically threaten God, our threats are stupidity. God's not, not wasted around by our threats. Our ultimatums are not a threat to him. Our carrying through on them is death to us. Because none of us can understand anything well enough to be capable of advising God on anything. God's a debtor to nobody. You've never given God anything that he didn't already own. Your offering this morning, <laughs> you simply gave God back some of what he already owns. Or maybe you kept some of God's stuff to spend on yourself. But either way, it's his. And he can take it from you and give it to you. Easy peasy. There's no negotiating with God. Why? You and I have nothing to negotiate with. It's all his already. We are utterly owned by him. We are mere squatters on his territory. The interesting passage in Acts 17 says this, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything for himself. Because he gives to all men life and breath. Your breath and your life are gifts from him. He owns them. And then Paul's exciting conclusion, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Not us for having figured out that we needed Christ. To him be the glory forever. And this is where Paul lands after 11 chapters of Romans. And this is where we're supposed to land after 11 chapters of Romans. If you're a Christian, we should, we should be people that know that everything we have comes from God. That it flows to us through Christ and the Holy Spirit and that it flows back to him through lives that are sold out to him in service and devotion. Not, not because we're looking to get his affection. If you're his child, you already got his affection. You're just doing it in response to his love for us. We love him back, right? And that life that Christ has given us links us together with God forever as his kids. And it will change the way we carry out the rest of our lives. Your life in Christ matters. His life in you will change how you relate to God. It will change how we relate to each other, even here at church. It will change how you relate to your spouse. It will change how you relate to your kids. It will change how you relate to your mom and how you relate to your dad. It will change how you relate to your boss. It will change how you relate to your employees. It will change how you relate to the various government and authority entities over us. It will change how we treat people who are not as spiritually mature. It will change how we treat people who are not even followers of Christ. It will change how we treat people who hurt us. It will change what we decide to get into arguments about. It will change us from being people who sit around and judge others all the time. Why does it matter? Paul just told us. To him be the glory. Forever. Because the end of all things, which include our lives, is to glorify God. The way we Christians live ought our prime directive to be to bring glory to God. That's God's master plan. What does glorifying our lives look like? Well, come back next week, because that's where we start chapter 
12, and we'll find out.